Well, good afternoon. I want to thank the ladies for uh, putting together such a wonderful soup luncheon. I tell you what, that was really good. Um, and I, I know, I know, after eating such good soup, you know, you sit on these comfortable pews, uh, you might uh, fall asleep, but uh, I have eyes. <laughs> I can see you, and the Lord can see you. I'm not oblivious to that. Um, and s some of the ladies asked me to just kind of recap a little bit at the end of my lesson uh, from this morning, since I had to get up and get ready for our luncheon. And so I'll just take a moment to to share a little bit about that. So if you recall from our second session, we talked about um, how the leaders of Israel had become spiritually oblivious. They thought everything was fine. And Ezekiel had a vision where God made it very clear, things are not fine. God has left his people. And, and I apply that to us today that sometimes it is possible for it to happen with us, with our individual lives and with the church. The reason why those leaders were oblivious is because of those four, uh, four things that they felt like gave them a sense of security. And we can do the same kind of thing. We can make our own list. And I didn't probably make this as clear, but I mean, we can, we can make our list. And your list is a little bit different than mine, maybe. Um, but we can say, because I'm doing these four things, God must be okay with me. And God must be pleased. When really, we might be oblivious to the fact that God's left. God's somewhere else. He's not where we thought he would be. And so what that cause, calls us to do is to check our hearts, to do a heart examination. And in verse 19 of chapter 11, that is the key passage where God offers the solution to being spiritually oblivious. And that is, you need to have a heart transplant. You need to let God change your heart to where it is in tune with him and seeing the world the way he sees it, caring about the world the way he cares about it. And let me just add this extra tidbit to that. And that is that when God left the temple of Israel, it was not because God's a mean God. It was not because he was having a temper tantrum. He left the temple because number one, he can't be around sin. But number two, because God wants Israel and the world to know him. Isn't that right? That's the theme. He wants Israel and the world to know him. And sometimes we can be so far away from God. Oh, help me out here. Sometimes we can be so far away from God that the only way God can get our attention is if he leaves us, if he turns his face away. And we just experience life without God for a little bit. Anybody been there? And I told this story about my friend Donnie who, who had a time in his life where he felt like God had left him when he had a bad car accident. But then he turned his heart towards the Lord and he told me later, I see now that actually he was there. I didn't see him because my heart wasn't right. And we can be there too. We cannot see him because our heart's not right. And so the first step if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, if we want to be in step with God and his mission in the world, we've got to get our hearts right to join him in what he is doing. So I feel like I should sit down. I just preached number seven. <laughs> we're just getting going here, folks. All right. Uh, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 18. 
Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ever, Ever since the Garden of Eden, human beings have had a propensity to blame others for their problems. Genesis chapter 3, remember the story where Adam and Eve take a bite of that fruit and all of a sudden sins entered the world and all of the curse of sin has now come upon them. So God comes and finds them and says, uh, Adam, what happened here? You know, did you, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to? And what does Adam say? It wasn't me. It was, yeah, she made me do it, right? <laughs> and husbands ever since then have, you know, been saying that. Blamed his wife. And so God turns to Eve and says, Eve, what'd you do? Why did you eat? Did you eat of this tree that I told you not to? It wasn't me, God. It was the serpent. The serpent tricked me. And ever since that point, up until now, whenever we get ourselves in a jam or some kind of mess, our knee-jerk response is to blame to blame others. And so when we fail the test, we blame the teacher. When we get the ticket, we blame the poor placement of speed limit signs. When crime rate goes, on, goes up, we blame the police. When church attendance goes down, we blame the preacher. We always blame. We blame others. And in fact, I, I've done some reading how blaming is almost like a virus. It's that contagious. There was a study done by Stanford University where they got 100 people and they gave each person a, uh, a piece from the news. And at that time, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California. And they gave, gave them a, a, a news release where he is talking about an initiative that he tried to get established that didn't pass. And 50 people receive a news release where he, where he blames the uh, special interest groups for why this initiative didn't get passed. And then the other 50 got a news release where he took, took the blame himself and said, this was because of my failure that this didn't pass. And then what they did is they followed these 100 people over the next 24 hours to see uh, how their behavior was. And what they noticed was that the 50 people who received the news release where Schwarzenegger blamed special interest groups, they were, that group was twice as likely as the other group to blame someone else for something going on in their life over the next day. So what that tells us is that blaming is contagious, And so when one person starts blaming someone else and they tell you about it, guess what you're going to start to do? You're going to start blaming someone else. And when you tell someone about it, then they're going to start blaming someone else. And it just starts growing like that, which has me very concerned because if you listen to our media and if you watch what's going on in our culture, people blame others all the time for the problems going on. No one ever takes ownership, right? And if we take that in over and over and over again, guess what's going to happen in the church? We're going to start blaming one another for the problems in our lives. We'll say, well, it's not my fault. It's that other person. And why do we do that? Brene Brown is a researcher down in Houston. She's a very thoughtful researcher. And she's done some research on blame. 
He said, actually, what we do when we're blaming someone for something in our life, we're, we're transferring our pain. So whenever we get a little mess in our life, make a bad mistake, do something that's not good, get a bad situation in our life, we feel pain. And with that pain comes anger. And so we got to cope with that pain. And so one way that we cope with our pain is we say, well, it's not my fault. It's their fault. And then we shift that pain to somewhere else. We blame someone else. Instead of owning up to what we have done and the mistakes we have made. Now, I share all this with us because I think that's a really good way to understand what's going on in Ezekiel 18. So to remind you of where we are, Ezekiel is a prophet called to minister to those exiles in Babylon, the 10,000 people who had to leave, forced to leave Israel to be in Babylon, what we call the first deportation. And they're asking the question, why are we here? Why are we in exile? This doesn't make any sense. God should be protecting us. God should be watching over us. Why, why is God doing this? And Ezekiel comes and he tells them, well, the reason why you're in exile is because Israel has been rebellious. Let me tell you what I saw going on in the temple. Israel is far away from God and God has left us. And that's why we're in exile. God's left us. Well, when the Israelite exiles hear this explanation from Ezekiel, that it's because of sin and rebelliousness, their knee-jerk response, because they're human beings, is to say this. It's not our fault. It's our parents' fault. It's not our fault that we're in this mess. It's not our fault that we're in exile. It's because of what our parents have done. Notice what it says. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, let me explain this proverb to you just for a second. So if, if you've ever eaten anything sour, like a lemon or something, other, something else sour, what happens? You take a big bite of a lemon, bite into it, what's going to happen? Oh, you're going to feel things tingling right here. Isn't that right? So what this proverb is saying, the father, fathers eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge, is that they were going around saying, our fathers bit into the lemon, but we're the ones feeling the tingling sensation in our teeth. In other words, they are the ones who did the bad stuff, and we're the ones dealing with the consequences. You got it? That was their response. It's not our fault. We're not the ones who've been rebellious. It's been our fathers. See, they knew the, the stories of the Old Testament. They knew about people like Manasseh. Anyone heard of Manasseh? Who was incredibly rebellious. They knew about a lot of the rebellious kings for Judah. And they knew how far away they had led the people from God. And so their response is, it's not because of our sin. It's because of their sin. It's because of people like Manasseh. It's because of our fathers that were in this mess. It's not our fault. And so from their perspective, they thought it was unfair. They felt like God is being unfair to us because he promised he would be with us. And here we are in exile, and it's not even our fault. It's our parents' fault. 
And so Ezekiel's response to that is something else. Notice what he says in verse 3. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. And the soul who sins is the one who will die. And Ezekiel was trying to explain. You're not here because of what your fathers did. No, they were evil. That's not why you're here. You're not just here because of what your grandfathers did. You're here because of what you did. The soul who sins will die. Now, to explain this principle that we reap what we sow, he uses a form of what we call case studies. And he uses, does two case studies. And, and to help us understand these case studies, I'm going to have a couple of volunteers come up here. And so you know who you are, but y'all are going to come up here. Bob, Kevin, and Jake, y'all come up here. And I want you to stand right up here. And I'm going to explain these case studies of Ezekiel 18. So y'all stand right up here, right in front, right in front. Okay, you stand right here, Jake. And then right here, Kevin and Bob, y'all right here. Don't, don't these look like a wonderful group of... Men here, now give me some room here to stand here. Okay. Okay, so in Ezekiel 18, he is trying to illustrate this principle that the soul who sins will die, and he does it through case studies. And so here is, you'll see on the screen how he breaks down these case studies. So here's what he says. First of all, he says, imagine that you have a grandfather, and we're going to call you. Are you a grandfather? I am. Good. Um, you have a grandfather, and he's a good man. And he follows the Lord, and he's faithful, and he loves his neighbor, and he cares for the poor, doesn't worship idols. He's faithful to his wife. He's a good man. What's going to happen to him? He's going to get his reward. He's going to live. He's going to have life. Okay, but let's say this grandfather has a son right here, and, and this, y'all aren't related, are you? We are. Oh, you are? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is he your son-in-law? Yes. Okay. So let's say that he has this good, this good righteous grandfather has a, has a son, and this son, for whatever reason, gets a rebellious streak in him. Do you have that in you? <laughs> gets rebellious streak, and, and everything that his father did right, he does wrong. So he is unfaithful to the Lord. He worships idols, doesn't care about the poor, doesn't care about the needy. He's unfaithful to his spouse. He just does everything wrong. What's going to happen to him? The soul who sins will die. He's going to have death. He's going to have death. Sorry about that. But let's say that this rebellious son has a son of his own who is the grandson of the righteous grandfather. And as this grandson is getting older, he sees his dad and thinks, you know, dad has a crummy life. And I don't want to be like him. I want to be like my grandpa, okay? Because he's got a good life. I want to be like him. And so he does all of the things that his grandfather does. He's faithful to his wife. He is, 
Y'all are enjoying this, aren't you, up here? <laughs> um, I like this story. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get worse, believe me, okay? Um, he's faithful to his spouse. He doesn't worship idols. He loves the needy, cares for the poor. He does what is right. What's going to happen to him? Okay. Now, what the exiles were thinking is what's going to happen to him is he's going to have death. Because we've been the righteous ones. We're getting punished for our father's sins. And Ezekiel was saying, oh, no. Oh, no. You have a part in this mess, too. You have a part in this mess, too. Because if you were righteous you would have life. Because if you have righteous, righteousness, you have life. If you have wickedness, you have death. And so if you're experiencing death, it's not because you were righteous. It's not because of somebody else's wickedness. If you're experiencing death, it's because of your own fault. All right, let's give them a round of applause. Y'all can sit down. I'm gonna call you, I'm gonna call you two back up in just a second. Notice again what it says in verse 20. It says, flip over there. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. And I probably should have mentioned this while these guys were up here. Certainly, certainly, generations have influence on the next generation. I want you to understand that. If, if a grandfather abuses his son, that son's probably going to struggle with trying not to abuse his son because that influences generations. If, if a married couple has, commits a divorce, that, that is going to influence the next generation. If, if a grandfather struggles with drinking, that's, that's going to trickle down and it's going to influence the next generation or two. Certainly the sins we commit have influence on the next generation, on our family. But just because something influences us doesn't mean we are guilty of it. Just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean that we get a pass when we commit sin. And it's very easy to be like those Israelite exiles. Like, well, hang on a second. I was born into a difficult family. It was dysfunctional, and I had bad friends, and I just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's why I committed that sin. And Ezekiel says, hang on a second. The soul whose sins will die. We are responsible for what we do. When I stand before God on Judgment Day, I'm not going to answer for what my dad did. I'm not going to answer for what my son Joshua did. I'm going to answer for what I have done. And it's the same way with each one of us. When we stand before God, it's about what we have done ourselves. We have to take responsibility for our own deeds and our own misdeeds. Now, the reason why Ezekiel is hammering this point home and driving it home, and this is where we need to pay attention is because, remember, what's the theme of Ezekiel? God wants Israel and the rest of the world to come to know him. And so what he wants to see happen among these exiles is he wants them to know him. 
He wants them to come back to him. Well, how, how do you bring a people back to yourself? Well, you have to first get them to understand what they've done wrong. The first step towards changing your life is acknowledging what you've done wrong. Isn't that right? That's the first step. It's coming to the conclusion that, okay, yes, it is my fault. You know, I know, I know John probably does a lot of marriage counseling, premarital counseling, and it's amazing. I don't do a lot of pre- uh, marriage counseling, but there'll be times where there's a married couple going through a tough time, and they'll call me up and want to chat about it and want to work through it a little bit. And it's amazing, whatever that's going on, that this is the way the conversation goes. The husband will say to me, if I'm talking to the husband, say, man, she keeps doing this. She keeps doing that. She never pays attention to me. She never cares about my needs. She, she, she. And if I'm talking to the wife, guess what the wife's saying? He never goes out and works. He never cares about his children. He never does this. And every time I want to say, stop, stop, stop right now. Let's focus on you. Because if your marriage is going through difficult times, you have a hand in that. You have a part in that. And so the first step to fixing your marriage is accepting your own responsibility in it. That's how we change. That's how things turn around. And so if we're in the midst of a, a situation right now in your life where you're struggling with some kind of sin behavior, let me tell you how to turn things around. Take responsibility for it. Struggling with pornography. You need to take responsibility for it. Don't start making excuses. Well, you know, it's just so accessible. You know, the computers are always... Take responsibility for it. Acknowledge it. Confess it. You're struggling with anger. Let your anger get out, out of control. Don't start blaming others about it. Well, they just never do what I want them to say. They just don't know how to communicate to me. No, take responsibility for it. Acknowledge it. Confess it. You're struggling with gossip, struggling with, with some other kinds of sin problem. The first step to change is always confessing our sin, acknowledging it. And that takes some courage. It takes some courage to own what is wrong. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to walk in front of the church and say, I've, blew, I've blown it. I've messed up. But it's only until we get to that point that we really can change. And Ezekiel understands that. God understands that. And so he's trying to drive this point home. The soul who sins will die. You've got to accept responsibility for the mess that you're in because once you accept it, something can start to happen. And to, and to make that point about how something can start to happen, he goes back to his case study. So I need, my, uh, I need Kevin and Jake to come back up. Bob, you, you can stay grandfather, he's, he's doing good. Okay. He's doing good. But y'all come back up. Hey, <laughs> okay. Let's say, and this is coming from Ezekiel 18. He says, let's just imagine that Kevin here, that he has a change of heart. He hears a really good sermon from John and he thinks, man, I need to change. And all of a sudden, all the things bad that he, was, that he was doing, he quits. And he starts worshiping God alone. He starts being faithful to his spouse. He starts caring about his neighbor and caring for the poor. He starts serving the Lord. 
Ezekiel says, what's, what's going to happen to him now? He's going to have life. He's going to have life. But let's say that his son, grandson of Bob, he was doing so good. But he gets drawn away by Satan. And he gets pulled down the wrong path. And all the things he was doing right, he stops doing and starts doing what's wrong. What's going to happen to him? He's going to have death. And that's the story of Israel, right? Started off so good. David was a good king. Solomon was a pretty good king. And then things started to turn south. And so what's going to happen? God says, sorry, I'm out of here. I'm leaving the temple because you have turned your back against me. And so there's death. But on the flip side, this is a situation of the exiles. The exiles are in a place of death. The exiles are in a place of rebellion. But Ezekiel's trying to say, hey, guys, there's hope. Because you can change. And that will bring life. Okay, let's give him another round of applause. And so what Ezekiel is trying to bring out in Ezekiel 18 is that change is possible. Change is possible, church. And, and this is the message of the gospel, right? Who we once were doesn't mean that's who we always have to be. Our past doesn't have to determine our present and our future. Isn't that right? Someone should say amen on that because that's good news. And that's what Ezekiel is trying to bring home. Just because you've had a bad past and you're here as refugees in Babylon doesn't mean your future has to be bad. You can change. You can change. And that's what God wants to see happen. He wants you to repent. And the reason why you can change is because of who God is. I want you to notice what he says in verse 23. God says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Brother, I, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? skip on ahead to that one right there. This is the reason why change is possible. It's because we serve a God who wants his people and the rest of the world to come to know him. That's his desire. His desire is not to punish people. His desire is not to bring death. He wants every single person in this assembly right now to be near and dear to his heart. That's what he wants. And he wants every single person in Oxford and Anniston and the surrounding communities to be near and dear to his heart. And because that is his desire, he allows us to change and repent. He gives second chances. He gives second chances. And, and this, this is what the prodigal son realized. Remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15? He, he goes off and becomes rebellious, goes, goes his, his way like Brian, goes his, goes his own way, right? Away from the Lord. And while he's sitting there feeding pigs in the pig fin, he realizes something. 
His life is a mess now because he spent all his money. There's a famine in the land. He doesn't have any money. He can't find any jobs except for feeding pigs. His life's a mess, but he realizes something. What does he realize? My father doesn't want me to die. My father wants me to have life. And so if I go back to him, I can have a second chance. This is the good news of the gospel. God doesn't want us to perish. And so no matter how far away we get from God, we can always turn around, we can always change, and we can find life. We can go far away from God. God could have completely left the temple, and yet we still can change and have life because God doesn't want anyone to die or to perish. For God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's why God sent Jesus. Because of this verse right here in Ezekiel. Because he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. He wants all of us in the world to know of him. As I think about this idea, I can't help but thinking about a guy from our church named Steve. Steve actually is my neighbor. Lives right down the street from me. And we have a special outreach event at our church in March called Day of Hope. And it's a special event where we have games for children, we serve food, and we have music groups perform, and then we have people share testimonies. And our whole idea is we hope that, that someone from the community will walk up and get a plate of food and their kids will go play and they'll sit down and they'll hear a story of hope. Well, a couple years ago, Steve came to the Day of Hope. And he came to the Day of Hope because he had decided that day, he's either that day or the day before, he had decided, I'm going to change. He'd been li living a life of addiction and drugs, and he looked at himself in the mirror and he said, I'm tired of this life, and I want to change. And so he, he came to the Day of Hope, and he, and he found me. And, and I didn't know him real well, but he said that he claimed to know, to know me. Um, but anyways, as we're talking, he said, I want to change. I'm here because I want to change. And I said, well, that's great. And I want you to come tomorrow for worship and come be a part of our hope ministry. And he said, I will. And Sunday morning came around and there was Steve. And the next Sunday, there was Steve. And the next Sunday, there was Steve. And he kept coming. And he kept coming and his life started changing and he became sober and he became clean and he got his health in a better place. And now he volunteers in our food pantry ministry. Now he is leading the hope ministry. It's an amazing turnaround. Well, we always invite some Harding students to come up and help us put on the day of hope. And last year when we had our Harding students with us, we were kind of giving them a little orientation. And I said, Steve, since the Day of Hope was just kind of the beginning of your turning point, would you come and speak to our students and just encourage them about what they're doing? He said, oh, I'd love to. And so he came and he kind of shared his little testimony about what had happened in his life and the big turnaround and how he had repented and how there was change and all these wonderful things. 
And then he looked at those Harding students, some of whom had been there the year before and had helped put on that day of hope that he first attended. He looked at them and he said, so I want to thank you guys for coming here because you helped save my life. You helped save my life. And that's the message of Ezekiel 18, church. It's the message that says no matter how far away you are, even if you're in exile from God, you can change because God doesn't want you to die. Your life can be saved, not only on this planet, but in the one to come. And I love how this chapter ends. It ends with God extending the invitation. God extends the invitation. In verse 11, not 11, 32. <laughs> I don't know, my, my contacts are not working so well. <laughs> 32, he says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. And I just imagine God as he's given this message to Ezekiel. His arms are outstretched. And he says, my people, repent and live. Come back to me. Come and find new life. Because I don't want any of you to perish. And that's our message, church. It's the message to each one of us. Come back and find life. Renew and restore and find life. But it's the message for our community. To join God in his mission and to tell them, Turn and live because it can be found through Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God of second chances. And who we once were doesn't mean that's what we always have to be. And even, even what we've been this past week doesn't mean that's what we have to be this next week. We can be different. We can turn around and change. Even though we're going down the wrong path, you don't want us to die. And so you open up your arms and you say, turn and live. Lord, we see your heart. We hear your passion in the words. We know you care. And so Lord, first of all, help us to turn and live. And if there's sin in our life, Help us to own it now. If we're having a mess in our life right now, help us to, to acknowledge it, to confess it, to come before the church tomorrow morning and confess it because that's the first place where we begin to change. Help us to stop blaming others for the problems in our life and to take ownership of them because then we know we can start to change. But then, Lord, also number two, Help us to join Ezekiel in proclaiming that message to the world around us that you don't want anybody to die and help us to, to beckon and to plead to our world to turn and live. In the name of Jesus, amen.